to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week, we're going to be looking at the case of The Crown against Sally Lane and John Letts. And the citation for this case is 2018 UKSC 36. And this case that we're looking at today concerns the funding of terrorism, which is something that has long been an offence under UK law, but has evolved as the nature of terrorism has changed over the years as well from things like the IRA bombings in the past to more modern threats like the uh, rise of Islamic State. The precise wording of the statute is uh, worth quoting in full, and this comes from section 17 of the Terrorism Act 2000, which states that, quote, a person commits an offence if he knows or has reasonable cause to suspect that the money will or may be used for the purposes of terrorism, end quote. And the key phrase that is central to understanding this case is reasonable cause. And what actually constitutes reasonable cause is the point of dispute. The appellants Sally Lane and John Letts, who will be the potential defendants in any forthcoming trial, argued for a narrow interpretation such that the accused themselves must actually suspect, with reasonable cause, that the money will be used for purposes related to terrorism. On the other hand, the prosecution sought to water down the strength of any mens rea requirements or mental element requirement because it would make their case easier to prove. Their argument from the prosecution was that there is not really a subjective element and instead, given the information available to the accused, the test is whether the reasonable man would suspect the money would go towards funding terrorism. When the case came before the Supreme Court, the justices looked at the background to the legislation in order to gauge Parliament's intention. As mentioned at the start, funding terrorism has long been an offence and can trace its origins back to 1976. At that time, the wording was a little different and did require the accused to possess either direct knowledge or suspicion. It was only in 1989 that the wording was changed so as to include reasonable cause for suspicion. If statutory wording is changed or a key phrase is altered, then it is fair to assume that this is not purely incidental and sits in a vacuum. The intention is clearly to widen the mens rea by not only introducing the objective test, but also by removing the need for actual suspicion on the part of the accused. On the other side, the legal arguments put forward by the appellants were, unfortunately, never very convincing. They essentially relied on the notion that there is no mens rea requirement at all in section 17 and therefore either the court had to read a mental element into the offence or it would end up being one of strict liability. Now it is true that there is a general rule such that when a piece of legislation creates a criminal offence but fails to establish a mens rea whatsoever then the court will read in a mental element as appropriate. The problem here is that there is already a mens rea and that general rule does not allow a court to simply extend the mens rea of an offence if they don't think it goes far enough. Instead, the starting point has to be the actual wording of the provision and section 17's reference to reasonable cause is more than enough to establish an objective test for the mental element of this offence. That plain reading of the Terrorism Act 2000 also removes the second possibility that the offence is one of strict liability because of the presence of mens rea. It is certainly true that any subjective aspect is limited to what information was available to the accused, 
but that itself cannot delegitimize the objective test established by Parliament. In the end, the mens rea for funding terrorism under Section 17 can be satisfied if, based on the information available to the accused, a reasonable person would suspect the money might be used for terrorism. Now, the analysis of this case will unfortunately have to be somewhat limited due to reporting restrictions imposed, and while I'm not sure anything I say will influence any criminal trial, I also don't want to end up like Tommy Robinson. If you are interested, then I would suggest doing what I did and just googling the names of the people involved. However, I think we are pretty safe talking about the Supreme Court decision, although it was a fairly simple one in the end that really just required the ability to read. That raises a legitimate question about why the case was brought in the first place, and, and one has to imagine that there was a genuine disbelief that such a serious offence would carry with it such a low bar for establishing mens rea. While that's not really a great basis for a legal challenge, it is a fair point. When Parliament establishes an objective test for any offence, they are saying that it will be judged by society's standards, rather than the standards of the individual. And there are a range of circumstances where this will be fair or even necessary. However, in an area such as terrorism, it is much harder to establish a consistent objective standard, as views tend to be more erratic. A prime example of this is from the government itself, where the official terrorism threat level changes on a regular basis. Okay, that is based on intelligence reports, but it is still ultimately a value decision. If that is subjective, then imagine what it is like for the average person on the street whose views do not derive from intelligence reports, but rather what they come across in the media, the views of friends and family, and even their own political beliefs. That is far less stable and is likely to be drastically affected if there has been a recent terror attack in the UK, for example, um, and that's still present in their minds. Where is the line drawn for reasonable cause to suspect that money is being used for the purposes of terrorism per Section 17? Sending money to your mother, for example, might sound fine on the surface, but what if your mother lives in a non-democratic country, or what if the country is a state sponsor of terrorism? Other difficult questions can arise around certain groups as well, like the Kurds, where there is a fine line between terrorists and freedom fighters. Starbucks has helped raise a lot of money for Israel, who continue to commit atrocities against the Palestinian people, so does that mean that anyone buying their morning coffee is helping to support terrorism as well? Before we go too, too far down this avenue, I think by this point you're probably getting the idea about what I mean. Terrorism and the funding of terrorism is hard to define at the best of times, so attempting to establish anything consistent is likely impossible. Bringing this back round to the Terrorism Act, the objective standard not only makes it easier to establish the mens rea of funding terrorism as an offence, but the nature of the offence itself means that the definition is so loose as to be, for all intents and purposes, meaningless. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast episode. If you did enjoy it, make sure to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. That always helps us and helps boost us up the rankings. Thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music as well. I'll be back with another case next week, but in the meantime, bye!